Psalm number 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. My message this morning is called The Testimony of the Lord Jesus. And the testimony of the Lord Jesus is this, that God has graciously put forth his glory in both the created order so that it is able to be seen through created things and in his written word so that his people would know him and they would faithfully keep his covenant. So my grand theme this morning is that God has demonstrated himself through created things in which or through which God can be seen that the mountains are not God, but God can be seen through reflecting upon the mountains or canyons or rivers or waterfalls. And that also in his word, he has held for or put forward a revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. That is, when we hear the psalmist say that the testimony of the Lord is sure as Christians living after the revelation of the Messiah in Jesus, we cannot read it as the testimony of Yahweh, but rather we must read it as the testimony of the Lord Jesus. Because what David is prophesying about is much more than just the created order and the law of Moses. He's putting forward a command to his hearers, us, to trust in the Lord's promises that he's revealed in his word. So I want to look at three major ideas. First, that God's glory can be seen in the creation, that there is an aspect of of his glory which is able to be seen clearly in the creation. I want to then 
discuss what it is that we must do as Christians to read the Bible for fullness. So in saying that, what, I, what I'm advocating for is that we cannot simply read the Old Testament scriptures and interpret them in the light of the information we have gained up to that moment in the recording of the Old Testament. That as Christians, we have to be involved in Christian reading. That is reading which puts forward and examines and discovers Christ and treasures Christ in those passages. And then finally, I want to commend to you the perfection of the gospel. As I believe David is writing not primarily about the law of God that he knew as it was revealed at that moment, but that by the Holy Spirit he looked forward and could see the preaching of the gospel in fullness. That that which was in seed form in the Old Testament writings would come in fullness, in maturity, with a clear revelation, and that he is testifying that that is sure and upright and rejoicing and good. So that's my aim. My aim and and theme is this, that David is writing about the Lord Jesus Christ's gospel, not simply just the word of God as it existed in the day that he wrote of it. David pens this song for public worship. When we come to the Psalms, we must understand that the Psalms have a twofold dimension to them, at least twofold. There are probably many other aspects. The first is that they are used to extol God's greatness, that the Psalms are used in order to give thanks to God and to describe who he is, to worship him, to both not only speak to him, but also to speak about him. If you have ever wondered why many songs to this day in the Christian church contain both you and he, it is because if you look at the Psalms, that is what they are occupied with. They are not only speaking to God, they also are used to speak to others. And there are many facets of the speaking to others that we must not lose. When we are discouraged and downtrodden in church, one of the great ways that God encourages us is that as we are standing among our brothers and sisters who are singing over us, we might be encouraged by what they are saying and singing. Our worship is to God alone, but it is not before God alone. And so the Psalms are not only worshiping and extolling God, they are also instructing others. David, as he writes this Psalm, at the inscription of the Psalm, it is to the choir master. And by that he means this is given, David is sending a letter to the choir master so that they would be instructed in what to use in public worship. But if you look at the structure and the words of the Psalms, of this Psalm, as we will do, It is used to instruct others. It is not just to sing to God. It is also, as we are singing to God, we are hearing one another. As David is describing in this psalm what the heavens are doing, he simultaneously is teaching Israel to reconsider the revelation of God through the creation and is praising God for his handiwork. So when he says the heavens are telling the glory of God, uh, an Israelite who's hearing this as the, his fellow Israelites are worshiping may think to himself, you know, I've never heard the glory of God in a conscious way when I've been looking up at the heavens as they would have done every night. For us, this is even sometimes hard to, to wonder about. Those who are sw- city dwellers, such as ourselves, we don't find anything very glorious in the heavens. 
It's only the case really if we get out away from the city and have a a night where we can see the stars and the galaxies and their glory. Um, That's when we can kind of get an aspect of what what David is saying. In fact, uh, many of us don't know this, but you can actually see the backdrop of the Milky Way on a, on a pure night. And, and to city dwellers, that sounds ridiculous, but the, the Milky Way does not just have stars. It itself has so many stars that it glows. There's an ambient light, even in the vastness of space. And, and this is explaining in one small aspect, as David tells us, the glory of God. God has created thousands and millions and trillions of stars to show forth his glory. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. One of the wonderful things about the Psalms is the way that they use words. And when David is saying day to day, this is very similar to a word we learned a few months ago called a merism. And a merism is just when two sides of the same coin are used to emphasize the whole, that day and night they surround the tabernacle or day and night they watch the city. The same thing is happening here. David is saying day to day the heavens are continuing to pour forth speech. They are not just saying something that evening as the sunset happens and then we wait till the morning. No, the stars pick up where the sun has left off. The moon carries forth a work as it receives the baton, as it were, from the sun as the day progresses. Day to day there is a speech that is being poured out. There is a message that God is speaking through his creation to people on the earth. From the very beginning of the scriptures, we see that God has established the sun and the moon to give light to the earth and to separate the light from the darkness. We cannot read Psalm 19 apart from the context of the the larger scriptures. In Genesis 1, 14 through 19, we hear that God has established the sun, the moon, and stars, the greater light and the lesser light, to rule over things, to be for signs and for seasons. Now, signs by nature are things which speak. We have signs here in this building. We have an insignia on this pyramid. We have the table here, which we will partake in at the end of the Lord's Day worship. These are signs that speak to us. So when God establishes the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the writer of Genesis records it as four signs and four seasons, then we know God is using, he's dedicating the sun, the moon, the stars for a specific purpose, which is to show forth his glory, to speak to his people. In all cultures and all times, the sun, the moon, and stars have witnessed of God's existence, causing men to wonder about who he is, to be filled with awe, to reflect upon his glory. Verse three, there is no speech or there is no type of speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. As God has set these celestial bodies or heavenly bodies in their courses, he has designed that they would express, as Paul records in Romans 1, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. Beyond this, the consistency of the heavenly bodies show the constancy 
of God. That is the resoluteness of God. That morning by morning, his mercies are new. That they have, there is a new grace in the midst of each day. That God is still at work and God is still ruling. I was speaking with a fellow saint this week and I was reminded of a quote from G.K. Chesterton in which he is discussing the, the repetition that is found in nature. And I don't know the quote well enough to quote it, but paraphrasing, Chesterton maintains that the sun does not rise each morning because God has set it to work like a clock and it's just ticking, but rather that because the eternal father is forever young, forever youthful, that he is constantly telling his creation what to do and that we grow bored with the resoluteness and consistency, but God creates each morning afresh. And if you had the opportunity to look westward in Dayton last night, perhaps you got to see what, I, I, I think it was no coincidence that our providential God uh, created such a wonderful spectacle last night. My, my daughter and I, we sat at our kitchen table looking out our back door and we watched as, as orange turned to purple and turquoise, and gray, and crimson, and, and ruby. All of these wonderful things that God was doing just in the clouds in our own atmosphere, let alone the glorious powers that exist outside of our solar system, and galaxy, and, and cluster. Everything that God has set in his heavens, he has done so that he would be seen. And that's exactly what David is getting at here. Verse four, continuing, in them he has set a tent for the sun. That is, in the heavens, the Lord has established a tabernacle or a tent in which the sun would move, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. I think Chesterton is right. The sun does not move forward because it is a ticking timepiece, but rather that God has invested and is continuing to invest joy into the created order, that he is causing his glory to be seen through the things which have been made. Verse six, it's rising, the sun's rising, is from the end of the heavens. Its circuit is to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Yesterday was a, quite a cool day, but before yesterday, you may remember that we have had an unseasonably warm fall, or beginning to fall. Uh, so unseasonably warm it has been that we've actually cranked the AC cooler the last week than in some of the prior months. It has been so hot, and yet, in my recollection, there haven't been that many sunny days The point that the psalmist is getting at here is that even if you try to hide your eyes from the heat, from the light of the sun, the heat of the sun penetrates everything. What David is saying is that the sun moves from sunrise to sunset, and as it is running its course with joy, it is affecting things. It is casting its rays upon the earth, and even if you hide from its light, you cannot hide from the heat. At this point in the psalm, David then turns from the revelation of God in creation to his perfect revelation in his written word. 
But at this point, I believe we must exercise extreme caution in how we move forward with the next few verses. To be sure, nothing in the psalm so far has proved too challenging, at least at first, in our understanding of it, because its meaning is transparent. We all understand what David is meaning when he says the heavens and the sun. We, we understand what he is describing because the rest of the scriptures describe it. Nothing is too hard so far in this psalm to read, but I might ask the question, or is it much too hard to read? The reason being is that if we do not understand the full sense of what David is getting at, we will miss a great aspect of what this psalm is about. In the modern era, the church in the West has greatly reduced the reading of the scriptures to focus solely on finding and learning the intent of the human author and the meaning for its original audience. If you have ever taken a Bible class, especially in a seminary or even in a high school, you have been taught to read the Bible and you have been given little signs along the way that indicate the way you should read the Bible. Especially if you have, for example, a study Bible like an NIV study Bible or an ESV study Bible. Those are wonderful aids, but there is a subtle flaw, I believe, in the way that the church in the modern era has read the scriptures. Because we have been given great tools in archaeology and grammatical historical research, we then have begun to focus on the words that were chosen, dissecting their meanings and their placements, and then turned to look at the broader extra-biblical context, the, the context of archaeology and history and other religions. Modern exegesis today is often more concerned with archaeology and comparative religious studies than it is with understanding the scriptures as interpreted by the apostles in the New Testament. Whenever we read in the Old Testament, we cannot simply use tools outside the scriptures to inform how we read the scriptures, but rather we have the duty, nay I say obligation, to read them the way that the apostles read them and used them and applied them. In the modern era, in place of allegory and typology, that is metaphor and symbol and word picture, we have overly focused on grammatical and textual issues. How do we know he's using this pronoun instead of that pronoun? But we've lost, I believe, the forest for the trees. Have you ever heard that phrase? It's a wonderful phrase. Next time you are going to a park, I would encourage you try not to lose the forest for the trees. That is to say, have some sense of what you're doing as you're approaching this wooded area. The point is, as soon as you get into the forest, you cannot see the whole of the forest. But that's what we're called to do in scripture. We're called to go into the words, and then we're called to return out from the words and look around and survey, and then come back again and re-examine and reassess. That is exactly what David wants us to do. Is David primarily concerned with the revelation of God through the sun, the moon, and the stars? Or does he have a greater understanding of how Yahweh is to be approached? We know from the rest of scripture, as we'll see in a minute, it is not appropriate to approach God merely through acknowledging his glory in the sun and the moon and the stars. 
These are a means by which we can see God's glory, but they are not sufficient for salvation. They're not sufficient for maturity. They are wonderful aids, but that is not what David is actually speaking of. Instead of reading just for what the author has intended or supposedly intended, which is a very dubious prospect in itself that we can even find that out, Rather, we should read the scriptures and allow the scriptures to inform how we hear the scriptures. What I mean by that is a process of meditation, a process of returning over and over again to the Bible. This is why in our Christian life, it's so important that we never give in to that temptation of passing through portions that are familiar to us. As we read John 3 and we get to 15, 16, 17, and we feel that temptation to skate on past pausing for a minute and reflecting upon what's being said, we often miss things that we were intended to find. Paul's words to Timothy resist this modern approach, although this is a development, of course, after Paul's day. But Paul's words resist this approach, holding that the word is not merely the result of a human author's impulse, but that all scripture is breathed out by God. That includes the genealogies. Doesn't, doesn't it? What Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is inspired by or breathed out by God, he literally means that the spirit of God expelled or expirated. That is to say that the, the Holy Spirit was inspiring, putting his spirit within the human author, and that the ultimate result was an expression of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, because it is from the Holy Spirit, it is therefore usable, it's profitable for reproof and training in righteousness and correction so that the man of God would be equipped for every good work. So if we do not read the rest of scripture as being inspired by God, but primarily myopically focus upon what the human author intended, then we are missing the full sense of the word. Likewise, Peter says to the New Testament Christians that the prophets of old spoke concerning this salvation. It's an amazing and startling phrase. In 1 Peter 10 through 12, he says that the prophets of old spoke concerning the salvation that came through Christ. So when we hear Peter say that, we must now go back to all the prophets of old, including David, and say to ourselves, how is David speaking about Christ? They spoke concerning the salvation which was to come through Jesus Christ and therefore they were not serving themselves but they were serving you. Revealing things which angels have longed to look into. You, Christian, have been given the prophets of old. They were not serving Israel alone. They were serving you. David wrote Psalm 19, serving you. And therefore, we have the duty and obligation. It is our joy, our privilege, our wonderful task, our glad assumption of the responsibility to read the Bible according to finding Christ everywhere. On the day of Pentecost, likewise, Peter interpreting Psalm 110, and he said of David in Psalm 110 that as David was penning Psalm 110, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Likewise, Peter, in his second epistle, he says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What a joy it is to know that we do not have the pages of the scriptures because of the intent of David or in the intent of Moses, wonderful saints as they were. We have the scriptures because the Holy Spirit moved them along. It is as if they were listening to a tune and they began to play in the same key that God was speaking, such that the Holy Spirit is like a grand conductor orchestrating a full, complete, composite picture of who the Lord Jesus Christ was so that the hearers of their day and of our day might be able to anticipate and recognize the Messiah. That is exactly what we have been given the scriptures for Therefore, when we read, we must not artificially limit the text to the human author's presupposed intent. Why do I say presupposed intent? Because we cannot distinguish motives apart from evidence. And the primary evidence that we have of what David wanted to write is what David wrote. There's no way to get behind the text. We have to understand what's there. We must recognize what is there and we must deal with it. But we must not deal with just Psalm 19. We must open our eyes to the grander context of the rest of the scriptures. Therefore, we must recognize in each passage how the Spirit was showing forth the glories of Christ. One sure way to do this, in fact, the most sure way to do this, is to see how the apostles quote various passages in the Old Testament. For example, in the epistle to the Romans, Paul describes the fullness of the preaching of the gospel to all of the nation of Israel, and he quotes this psalm. In Romans 10, 17 through 18, he says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they... Israel not heard? Indeed they have, for there, the apostles, voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. What Paul has just done would, equip, would essentially get him kicked out of any modern biblical hermeneutics class. He has just taken words of David concerning the movement of the sun, moon, and stars in the general revelation of God to all people and has directly, without any apologies, applied it to the preaching of the gospel by the apostles. That is scandalous interpretation if Paul is not an apostolic authorized interpreter. The point is this, whereas David had said this about the celestial bodies, Paul applies it to the teaching of Christ and the apostles, and indeed John the Baptist can be considered uh, among them. Now, having said it is scandalous, it would be scandalous to those who don't know the rest of the New Testament. However, knowing the rest of the New Testament, this interpretation should not surprise us in the least. For John's gospel in chapter 1 says that Christ is the true light. What is the light of the world? It's not the sun, John says. It's God's son. The true light which gives light to everyone in John 1 verse 9. In fact, John goes through great pains. I find it interesting that he's done this in his first chapter to use the word light seven times. And if you look at the words that he uses, he could have used it about four times. 
But the way that he crafts that first chapter of his gospel is he's trying to say there's a perfection of light that came through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is not only the true light, but he is the perfect revelation of the Father. As that light shone around Israel, both in Christ's earthly ministry as well as the time of the apostles, men quite literally received their sight and they turned from the darkness of sin to become light in the Lord, as Paul tells the Ephesians. There is something that has happened that the people who dwell in a great darkness, upon them a light has shone and it's enlightened all men. It's caused them to become responsible to, to hear the gospel and to hear it with faith. Jesus is not just the light of the world, but as he taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he then declared to them who would go and preach in all of Israel, you are the light of the world. Is anything looking familiar here? We have the son of God who has arisen on a dark land, a place where no one can see who God is and he now, God in the flesh, has come and begun to shine upon all and there is coming a time in John's gospel, Jesus is quoted as saying, night is coming and we will not be able to work when night comes. As we sing in one of, one of my favorite songs that the, the morning sun died upon the cross but he did not stay dead, he was raised and commissioned his disciples to be like little stars, invading the land, shedding forth light. In fact, it's interesting that this theme is not just one or two places, but it is one of the most important themes in the New Testament. As Paul witnesses to King Agrippa testifying of the road to Damascus experience, Paul says that he saw Jesus Christ shining brighter than the sun. When the um, solar eclipse took place, I was down in Cincinnati, and we had nine minutes of what they call uh, the periphery of totality, and that is an astronomer's phrase um, for there was a time in which the sun was covered by about 91 to 95 percent, and they told everyone, this does not mean you can look at the sun And I looked at the sun. (laughs) The reason being, I wanted to see what the difference was. Being covered 91%, to me, a tiny human, 93 million miles away from the sun, there was no difference at all. It hurt just as much as staring at the sun midday. The point that I'm trying to get across here is that the sun, as it shines in our sky, is powerful It's not to be trifled with. It's not to be presumed upon. And Paul wrote of Jesus Christ as Christ stood on that road to Damascus and he said, it was brighter than the sun. Paul usually doesn't mince words when he's giving testimony. He's not writing poetry when he's saying that. Not only was Christ brighter than the sun, but as he saw Jesus Christ, he was told... Jesus Christ said to him, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes. That is what the preaching of the gospel by the apostles is. The preaching of the gospel in the New Testament by the apostles is that which, just like the sun, can cast light upon the earth, giving light to all men. The gospel preaching is like sunlight. 
it is able to open eyes. So understanding this word picture, which I maintain is one of the most important word pictures in the New Testament, we therefore see the importance of reading this psalm and indeed every psalm in the light of Christ. It is the case that until we read this psalm concerning the preaching of the whole counsel of God's word, we cannot understand and therefore we cannot cling to the promises which this psalm puts forth about Jesus. So, looking back again with new fresh eyes, having gone into this little forest and looked around and having come out and considered the broader picture, we see again with new eyes that the Holy Spirit moving within David does not intend us to find perfection in the law of Moses, but rather in the entire sum of God's word through the gospel. As we're about to see, when David says that the law of the Lord is perfect, he does not mean the law of Moses, but rather the whole scope of the gospel. That is, the word law is not the word that is used for law commonly. It is the word Torah or Torah. It is the word that describes God's written revelation. As he says in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Look at that promise. Is your soul dead? According to David, the law of the Lord revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord, therefore, as David is saying, is not for us just a memory of what Yahweh did in times of old. It is not just a retelling of the Exodus, but rather it concerns all of what God has done through Jesus Christ. By trusting in God's sure word, we become like Timothy as Paul told him that he was acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. Do you see what's going on here as he's being made wise for salvation? He is being given tools and abilities which cause him to be able to understand what Jesus Christ is saying. It says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Paul might have been referring to that when he was telling Timothy that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. The testimony of Jesus Christ, therefore, is the whole gospel promise, not just the gospels themselves of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but all which the scripture puts forward of Jesus Christ. That is to say that David has in mind the time in which the full revelation of God would be given to his people, not only in the coming of Jesus Christ, but in the faithful recording of his words and the interpretation found in the New Testament epistles. In fact, reading this psalm simply as concerning the whole of God's word and not as the law of Moses is actually the only way in which this psalm makes any sense. I want you to reconsider just for a second these verses. The law of the Lord is perfect. How can the law of the Lord be perfect when we know in the New Testament that it was not able to, as, it next, as the very next phrase says, revive dead souls? We, we clearly see that this reading is not only a possibility, it is the only possibility. We must read this concerning all 
of the gospel promise. Weakened by the flesh, Paul says in Romans 8, that the law of Moses was never able to revive the soul, but rather it is God's full message to man which is perfect and ought to be wholly trusted. By saying the full revelation of God's word is perfect, we do not say that the law of Moses had errors. It was perfect, and it is perfect. Paul even says, we know that the law is good. We know that the law is holy. Yes and amen, but it's Its purpose is not to perfect its hearers, but to actually cause them to recognize their death. That the law working, that sin working through the law would produce death or the awareness of death in the hearers of the law. Verse eight, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The gospel here in these verses is seen as our joy and our light. And indeed, without hearing these about the gospel, only hearing these statements about the law of Moses, this would actually send absolute terror into our heart. Hearing that the commandment of the Lord is pure, unless we understand that that commandment relates to responding to the gospel, then we would be absolutely terrified. Why? Neither you nor I are pure, nor will we ever be pure apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. And hearing that God's commandment is pure, we who are impure are not encouraged to run to him, but rather we would be compelled to run from him. None of us can keep the commandments purely, but rather in hearing that the commandment of the Lord is pure, we remember that in Christ's teaching in the gospel of John, he said that the root of all of God's commands, the work which God wants his people to be doing, as John 6, 29 says, is to believe in him whom he, the father, has sent. They ask him, what must we be doing to do the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God that you believe upon the one who the Father has sent. That is the sub sum and substance of all the commands. That all the commands must proceed, all of our obedience, all of our trusting, all of our obeying and behaving must come from a place of trusting in the one who puts us right with God. Only then can we even hope to begin to walk as those who fulfill the law. That's what Paul has said, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 19, verse 10, more to be desired are they, the the promises of the gospel, than gold, even much fine gold. Have you ever considered gold for a minute? If you, if you never get, have had the chance, I highly recommend experiencing the difference between gold and paper money. I actually thought about trying to bring an illustration, but I decided against it because I'm not into gimmicks. But, but the difference between what the money that you and I touch every day, it's paper. It can be created at will. It can be destroyed at will. What the psalmist is saying is that the commandments of the Lord are more to be desired than gold. The reason is, is gold has always been a desirable 
thing. It's, been a, it's a form of money which can neither really be created nor destroyed. And it has substance to it. It's heavy. It is very clear if you have your gold coins with you or not. You, you do not forget them. They, they have weight to them. They're to be desired because they're rare and they're precious and they are useful in trade and useful for saving, for longevity, for your future. That's what David is saying about the promises of Christ in the gospel. They are valuable moment by moment. They help you get through your life and they are to be treasured and stored up so that at the end of your life you have a wealth of them. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by the promises and warnings of the gospel, is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Many of us, we think about the verses of the Old and New Testament and we will occasionally memorize some of them and we will occasionally meditate upon them. But really we approach sin in a very negative fashion. Even having been, been transformed into new creations, we are often in a place where we don't do a particular sin because of the fear of getting punished or the fear of experiencing a negative consequence. And that indeed is a right use of God's word. God does warn us so that we would not suffer unnecessarily the consequences of sin. However, we must also begin to, as Christians, walk in a optimism of the power of the reward of Jesus Christ. When God tells us to not do this or not do that or positively to do something, when we hear those warnings and promises, we should not simply just do them out of a sense of obligation, but rather God wants us to be invested in them as it were. There's a reward and David commends a reward. We shouldn't be ashamed of rewards in Jesus Christ. There are great rewards in knowing and treasuring Jesus Christ, namely the communion with him that takes place by the Holy Spirit. Above every other reward that I have tasted in life, better than marriage, better than church service, better than working at a, at a career, the pleasures of knowing Jesus Christ, the moment-by-moment moment communion that comes through his word, among his people, at his table, those rewards far surpass anything that could be obtained, not just in knowing the Bible, but keeping the law, but rather treasuring his promises, treasuring his words. So as I maintain, David is not simply telling us to look at the law of Moses, but he's causing us to consider all of the gospel promises as being perfect and rejoicing and sure and able to be trusted and steadfast and never changing. All of those promises that we once believed in the gospel at the first always are sustained for the Christian. So this is my aim, that as knowing as having come to know the fulfillment of God's word that is brought about by Jesus, we would wholeheartedly cling to the gospel promises. That is what my, my belief is David's aim, is he's trying to put forward these gospel promises. We ought to treasure them above every, early, uh, every other earthly thing. One final application of a, a way that I would encourage you to apply this to your life 
is find a few, a select few. Don't make it too hard for yourself. Find a select few verses that resonate with your soul. I did this last night as I was preparing to worship this morning. Second Corinthians, either 8, 9, or 9, 8. I'm terrible with references. If you're like me, there's hope. Um, that, that my God is able to supply all grace to you, having all sufficiency in all things at all times. That's three alls. The warmth that that brings to your soul in the moment, the power of specific promises to treasure and to cling to and to store up like you would store up gold. That is what we must do if we are to apply this passage And so I would just commend you to go on a journey. Don't make it too hard. Don't try to memorize whole chapters. Find specific promises, which to you are like gold, one verse at a time, and treasure it and meditate upon it and and eat it and let it become your joy and your delight. Let it become to you sweet. And I would promise you that God will not be found a liar. He will fulfill these promises. You will find them to be better than money and better than food and better than every other thing. I believe our father loves it when we take him at his word and we put his word back to him, not as as a test, but as those who faithfully trust in his word. So I would commend to you this practice, memorize verses, single verses that feel powerful to you in the moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that not only can we trust in the historic recording of your scriptures, but we can trust that as we come to every place in your word, that Jesus Christ might be found in those places. We ask you, Father, that you would open up our eyes, give us new eyes, anoint our eyes to see beautiful things from your law. Lord, we ask you that you would cause us to be people who find and cling to specific promises in the gospel. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.